everyone, welcome to the 38th episode of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Most of you are probably aware of, at this point, Michael Majors is no longer with us. He was hired by Wizards of the Coast uh, for their play design team, and it happened kind of abruptly, but it was a thing that we both knew that he was like working towards for a while, and it finally happened, and he got a chance to do it, so he hopped right on it. I certainly don't blame him. Uh, I kind of blame Wizards for hiring all my co-hosts, but that's neither here nor there. We have a new person, and his name is Brian Gottlieb. I'm sure that not a lot of people have actually heard of this dude, but he's great. I vouch for him, and I'm very happy to have him here. So, Brian, like, who are you, and how did you get here? It's a good question, Jerry. I, I think that's a, um, probably a mystery to a lot of people listening to the cast. I, I think I heard the who's resounding across the internet when you said my name there. I'm someone who's been playing Magic for almost the entirety of the game's history now. Uh, 1994 is when I started. You know, I didn't take it particularly seriously at the start. Uh, My first GP was, I think, 2011. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was just something that, like, it's not to say I didn't play tournaments, but I I wasn't really invested in the most upper echelons of the, the competitive scene. And then in 2011, I played my first GP qualified for the pro tour at that gp and i was just hooked after that that was it i've been obsessed with you know high level magic and kind of making my occasional appearances on the pro tour ever since then as far as our relationship i think we first touched base probably in like 2011 right in the kind of the heyday of the star city scene right yeah that sounds about right i I remember, like, first officially meeting you, sort of officially, like, in a dark parking lot, just being like, hey, man, what's up? I and, remember that as well, yep. Yeah, and it was just like, we knew each other from mutual friends and Magic Online and stuff like that, so we would always talk about decks and stuff, and yeah, I don't know, we, we've just had a pretty good relationship, and you were one of the people that I was always happy to see at tournaments and see what you brought, and yeah, just talk to you about how things were going and stuff, because you had a very good mind for things, like kind of similar to Majors, actually, which is, you know, why you were basically my first pick for this. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy to have you. I think it's one of those things where you meet someone and, and you realize that they think about something you're passionate about in the same way you do, right? Like we just, we, we talked about magic in the same way. We had the same kind of gripes with the way other people talked about magic. You know, we were just two people who were really excited to, to shape metagames and uh, anticipate metagames and kind of our relationship has flowed from there. We've collaborated on a few decks uh, over the years. Ooh, and this is this is a good one. Yeah, Nivmeg is elemental, right? Uh, like, yeah. I knew you were going to mention it. This is the thing that you don't want me to bring up. Yeah, but y- you feel badly about this. I don't think you should. But Brian was actually the person who sent me this deck before PTRTR. I always wonder if I should take credit for that because it it is kind of a deck I am proud of. I think it was very off the radar, obviously very strange and very powerful. It's just that both of us kind of completely read the metagame for that Pro Tour just completely backwards. There was no way we anticipated the number of Jund decks. And and knowing that Jund was a horrible matchup, what was the field, like 35% Jund at that tournament? It was like 33. And I still maintain that if the field was like 15% Jund or whatever, I would have done just fine. I agree. I I mean, I remember at one point in the tournament, they interviewed you about the deck and you were like X and O against everything besides Jund, which you were winless against. Correct. And the Jund matchups were close. It was always just like, are they going to peel a lightning bolt or whatever, you know? Yeah, you were always like a turn short, right? Or like a card short. Like, oh, I just needed one more little bit and I was fine. Yeah, I I think that's, you know, kind of one of my claims to fame. Uh, I was kind of an early proponent of Junk Rights in that standard. I did a lot of work on early Splinter Twins. So those are some of the decks you might have seen from me. As far as accomplishments, you know, I have a GP Top 8. I've played a bunch of Pro Tours, some good finishes. I think I differ from your old co-host in that I am not a professional magician. Uh, I'm actually a lawyer by trade, and, you know, I've kind of had to put magic aside at a lot of points in my life to pay the dues that lawyering requires as far as law school and working those long hours. But I think about the game literally all the time, and I'm super excited to have an outlet to talk about it, uh, you know, to help people improve help myself improve honestly i think having these conversations weekly is only going to benefit me you know i hope everyone else who listens to the cast benefits as well yeah it benefits both of us for sure another thing that i think when i think about you is like you're a pretty deep run at pt origins and rally the ancestors was like another deck that you were a pretty big proponent of early 
Yeah, it's funny. That's a deck I, I actually hated in that Pro Tour. I only went 5-5 five and five in Constructed. I 6-0'd Limited in that Pro Tour. And, you know, my wins were front-loaded. So I lost three winnings for a top eight on the back end. Definitely a very, very painful experience. We were super close to playing Mono Red at that tournament, too, which was clearly the best deck. At least it seemed to shake out that way by the time we got to the top eight. So it was disappointing. I, I didn't love the Rally of the Ancestors deck, and, and kind of we didn't go as far with it as we should have. Obviously, in the weeks that followed, that deck got refined to the point where it was indisputably, I think, the best deck in the format. But we weren't at that point by the time we got to Pro Tour Origins. So not, not a deck I have fond memories of, since it kind of led to the biggest disappointment of my Magic career so far. Word. Well, I'm sorry to keep bringing up your disappointments. (laughs) I guess I have a lot of disappointing decks uh, in my past history, but I have some, you know, successful ones as well. So they'll balance out. Yeah, for sure. So you also do the First Strike podcast. Feel free to plug that. Yeah, I've been I've been podcasting for actually about six years now. I I did my first podcast in 2011, and you were a guest on that podcast. It was something called Pardon the Interrupt, and we did like a debate style show. It didn't last all that long, but it was kind of a fun intro to just talking about magic and, you know, getting myself comfortable behind the microphone. And now I do the First Strike podcast over on Mana Deprived. And it's a very different podcast from this podcast. It's it's more we just kind of debate mm, topical issues. It's, it's not really, you know, an in-depth strategic podcast. It's more like what's going on in the magic world? How do we feel about it? And it's great. It's fun to do. I hope, you know, listeners of the game podcast will come and check out that podcast as well. But it's it's definitely nice to have an outlet for my uh, spikier side because I have to kind of play the role of uh, a casual sometimes on that show and I am the furthest thing from a casual. I want to win all the time, every time. If we're not playing for some kind of stakes, I probably am not interested in the game of Magic. I'm kind of infamous or even in playtesting sometimes. I, I like to you know, make a little side wager to make it interesting for myself. <laughs> but that's just yeah. how I am. I, I, I want to win. I want to have something on the line and I think that's going to fit in well with this podcast. Hell yeah. Okay, so uh, I, I'm probably going to plug this at the end, too, if I remember, but you are at Brian Go on, on Twitter, B-R-Y-A-N-G-O. That is correct, B-R-Y, and the correct way of spelling Brian. Sorry, mm. you Brian's with an I, but you're spelling it incorrectly. Uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> anyway, the big thing that we're here to talk about is Hour of Devastation previews. So right now, There are 98 out of 199 cards previewed for that set. Maybe that number is accurate. Maybe it's not. I'm not really sure. But there looks to be like a lot of cool things out so far. Uh, Brian and I were talking before the podcast, and it kind of came up that the the set seems kind of weird, kind of light, as far as like good cards that fit in places. It seems like the, the set has like a pretty big Johnny feel, and... There's a lot of like weird sideways stuff with the deserts and everything. There's not a lot of stuff that's like, you know, for me, I'm like, oh, what goes in my zombie deck? You know, like I'm, I'm looking for that sort of thing. There are a few a few build arounds and just like a lot of weird cards. I don't know. Yeah, we're missing the staples, right? Like where's right. where's the good removal spell? You know, the solid discard spell, those kind of, you know, the things you expect to see in, in every set that kind of tighten up existing decks a little bit. They're not really here so far. And, and maybe they're loaded on the back end of the spoiler. Obviously, we're only about halfway through. But, you know, if experience with past spoilers tells us anything, it's the good cards are usually front loaded, right? We don't usually get the good cards on the back end. Right. Nickel Bolas was one of the big things that was previewed initially. And it's like, okay, everyone expected that. But it's like, yeah, where's where's like the Thrag Tusk and the bonfires and all that stuff. Like, how yeah. many mythics are even spoiled? Because it doesn't seem like a lot. I guess a lot of the gods, but... Yeah, I don't know. Mysteries, man. Mysteries. Still time. Still time. I I, I have faith. I, and I do find this set interesting on kind of another axis right now. Like you said, there's a lot of build-arounds, and I do have some concern that they may not quite get there in the face of, you know, a very large and very powerful standard, but they're definitely worth talking about and worth exploring, and I think we're going to do that today. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this this standard has just been one issue after another, it seemed yeah. like. The, the power level of certain decks is so high, and those decks are so good at doing what they do that it is very difficult for a new standard deck to actually, like, break into the ranks and become, like, another yeah. Tier 1 or even two, Tier 2 strategy. So it's tough out there, you know? Like, Mardu and the energy mechanic, and, I like, Zombies is, like, the newest thing, I think. But, like, even, even like, the blue control decks, like, all the decks are so good. It's, like, how do you actually compete with these things? Yeah, I, I see that as a function of the huge card pool. Do you agree with that assessment? Do you think it's just there's there's too many cards for kind of a lot of these cards to break through because the power level... I mean, if you're taking the best cards from every set, obviously the bar just gets raised and raised as you add more sets to the pool, right? Right. Yeah, I, I do think that that adds to it to some degree, but also 
like Mardu was a deck with a small card pool, so like that created its its own issues, right? Where it's like this deck is far and away like the best thing. It's also like very good at being like aggro and control. And the fact that there's a small card pool means that it is very difficult for other decks to actually build something to fight it because they just don't have the tools to do that. Yeah, and that, now that there's a big card pool, you would think like, oh, like maybe other things would be on par with that deck, but that doesn't seem to be the case. It's just like been consistently there for the last three sets or so. Yeah, well, we know that power level and standard seems to move in waves, right? That, that's been my perception of it. And I don't know if that's intentional or just kind of natural design. Like you either consciously or subconsciously pump the brakes a little bit when you make a really powerful standard format. So we could certainly be in a downtrend right now, just thinking globally. I do think this set's going to, to do some shaking up when it all comes, when it all comes to fruition. Yeah, I, I think that when Standard is in a point like this, and I don't really know like what Wizards got to see from the real world when they're actually making like final calls on you know sets like our. But generally, if it's like oh, Standard is very powerful, you can't really power creep that. You just have to like power creep it in other spots. Mm-hmm. So it's just like you make new different strategies that can compete not necessarily just like ramping up the same power of like all the mardu cards or whatever so yeah. uh having a set like this where it's like oh like a lot of weird stuff and maybe there's some like build around stuff that is actually good and can compete like maybe that'll happen and maybe that takes like the entire set to actually see like a complete formed deck come out of this you know who knows anyway you guys had the privilege of previewing one of probably the best cards in the set in hollow one on first strike so like i didn't i didn't watch the episode how did that go down like what did you guys think i was all in immediately i'm actually kind of shocked i don't you know i kind of went to social media after the show and just to see now that the card was out in the wild if people were excited about it as i was there hasn't been too much talk about it i don't know if it's just there hasn't been enough time yet or if people are kind of sleeping on this card or maybe we don't have enough viewers that we got, we got enough eyes on it immediately but yeah hollow one i think is the most impactful card from the set we've seen so far so i guess i should read these cards i gotta get back into the habit of doing this so uh it is five generic mana for an artifact creature golem hollow one costs two less to cast for each card you've cycled or discarded this turn it also has cycling for two mana and is a 4-4. So if you play something like Cathartic Reunion, this this is going to cost one mana. If you cycle two cards, this is going to cost one mana. This this card just seems sick to me. Yeah, one mana 4-4s are pretty good, I think, right? Magic hasn't moved that far along that we're not no. interested in one mana 4-4s, right? No, they're still good. Even if it's like a Sarah Avenger type of thing, right? Where it's like you can't do it until turn three, turn four. It's still good. Yeah, when, when I started kind of analyzing this card, the first thing I did was I, I just brainstormed and I started writing a list of cards that I thought were interesting with it. The page in my notebook very quickly filled up. There are a ton of cards which are interested with Hollow One, and it, it's not limited to just standard. I think this card's going to reach back to modern, certainly in the Living End deck, but I think even broader than that, we're going to see some new archetypes based around Hollow One. Let me just read through this list of cards I listed uh, in yeah, standard. Yeah, man, go nuts that I'm excited about. News Constrictor, uh, along with the whole package with uh, you know Shadow of the Grave and Flame Blade Adept. There's the memory side of Commit to Memory. There's Haunted Dead, Stitchwing Scab, Ghoul Steed, all those cards which discard two. Kind of fits as a B-plan in New Perspectives. There's Cathartic Reunion, Lightning Axe. There's Madness Creatures, which now you're kind of incentivized to work to get your Madness Creatures into play. There's Collective Brutality, one of the best removal spells, maybe not in this format, but Certainly in modern, you can see when the format lines up properly, uh, the impact of collective brutality. There's Bowmat Courier. You know, this was just a, a quick brain fart of cards I was interested in. So you see there's a lot of potential here, a lot of cards existing in the current standard format that can really make your hollow ones cheap. Yeah, things like Haunted Dead and News Constrictor, like... Were, were things that I was trying to build around before anyway, and this yes. is just another great payoff card for those decks. So I'm pretty excited to go back and revisit old things and, and also just, like, make new things. Yeah, so, so let's just talk, I guess, on a, on a little bigger scale, like, what decks are these cards all coming together in? Before the last Pro Tour, there was a little bit of talk about the Noose Constrictor deck, the Shallow Grave combo. That deck is capable of killing on turn three without Hollow One in the mix. Right, and this just gives it a, a better backup plan. Yeah, yeah, a great backup plan. It's very easy to see situations where, you know, on, on turn three, you have two hollow ones and your opponent's at, what, six life, right? It's not, it's not even far-fetched. It's, it's totally plausible that these situations come up. And then moving on, when I talked about new perspectives as a B plan, I, I'm, I'm less excited about that. I think that 
new perspectives to go off requires a certain number of cards in hand. Um, if you're putting hollow ones into play, it's going to be more difficult to hit that seven card threshold to cycle all your cards for free. I, I'm thinking more of like a, a sideboard play and it allows you to transition into something where you're just attacking them with creatures to beat their hate. Yeah, I, I guess so. Because their sideboard plans are really bad right now. I mean, I, I think the deck in general is kind of bad. Would you agree with that? Uh, mostly. Yeah. 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 I, I actually, I played a PPTQ this weekend. If you don't know, Jerry, a PPTQ is this thing that uh, us lower level players do every now and then where we try and win a tournament so we can participate in another tournament to get to the tournament we really want to go to. I know you're, you're blessed with the platinum status, so you may not be familiar with this whole drudgery. Listen, when, <laughs> when, when I came back from Wizards and I was trying to qualify for things, I played in five PPTQs and did not top eight a single one. So PPTQ is confirmed harder than the PT. Uh, well, I played in a lot of pro tours before top eighting one also, so. Okay, that's fair. Most magic tournaments are difficult. Uh, yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I, I played against the new perspective decks in the finals of the PPTQ, and it just sat there and died both games. It actually did nothing, so. And you were playing Mardu? I was playing Mardu, yes, which, which shouldn't be a good matchup. The only real interaction I had were uh, two sideboard transgress. So it's not like I was packing Lost Legacy or anything like that. And it still felt like a pretty easy matchup, to be honest. But this is a new wrinkle, right? One of the problems is that it just it can't do anything but its new perspectives plan. So if your opponent wants to interact in any way with that, the deck just kind of folds. At least here we're getting a little bit of pressure, a potential B plan. But let's go back to like the blue-red emerge decks. Now that's a deck you've worked with a lot in the past, right? A little bit. I was more so focusing on like Haunted Dead, Prized Amalgam, just like actual graveyard decks, like no Elder Deep Fiend or anything. Okay. And you see this card slotting in those decks, obviously. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it is very good with Haunted Dead. If you're doing like Noose Constrictor things and you're you're trying to like discard things for value, you get to do like Honor Hydra, like discard that and then play Hollow One. Next turn, you have a 6-6 to follow up. It's just like you create a lot of power on the cheap. Yeah, uh, this this sounds like a, a tier one type deck for sure. You're you're talking about kind of broken power levels. I guess that's what's most exciting about Hollow One, right? Is I could say, I could honestly see this card missing. I could see it not making an impact. But if it does make an impact, it can only do so as a broken card, right? There's no right. fair way to play this card. It's either a, a one mana four four or it's not being played, right? Yeah, exactly. Some other potential homes for this. I want to talk about modern real quickly. The obvious slot is Living End. You know, Living End is very much focused on the one mana cyclers. So people are often, when I talk to people who play a lot of Living End, they're hesitant to even consider the two mana cyclers. Even the Archfiend of Ifnir, that hasn't seen as much play in Living End as I first expected because its cycling cost was two. Hollow One, though is doing something totally different. It's able to present a clock prior to Living Ending while you're still doing your setup, right? So you could, on turn three, cycle three creatures and play two hollow ones. That's great, man. Now you've you've demanded a response to both your A plan of living end and your B plan of just putting hollow ones into play. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm kind of skeptical of that plan, but it doesn't sound crazy to me because even worst case scenario, this thing still cycles for two mana. Yeah, ex exactly. It has like a fail state. If you're not able to do those kind of shenanigans, it's still a card you can put in your graveyard and it's, it's better than monstrous carabid, right? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. The, the next home in Modern is kind of a new archetype, and I don't have this one quite fleshed out in my mind yet. I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it, but it's something that involves, obviously, both faith, Faithless Looting and Street Wraith. It's very easy to see once you have those two cards in your deck, situations where you put two hollow ones into play on turn one for no cost. You know, all you have to do is Faithless Looting and Street Wraith, um, and then find those two hollow ones in those three extra cards you've now seen. So what does a deck that plays both those cards look like? And, you know, you start obviously thinking about Death Shadow, which is the most efficient creature in the format right now, as soon as you have Street Wraith in your deck. But the, the Faithless Looting is kind of a problem, right? Because there's not a lot of modern decks right now that want to play that card fairly it's kind of a dredge only card at the moment can can you think of any potential homes where you're you're looking to play both those cards so i i like brutality just in general in modern especially yeah. if if you have a way to break parody like maybe you're discarding lingering souls or you're drawing a bunch of cards somehow or whatever and that obviously plays pretty well with this faithless looting also plays pretty well with bedlam reveler so you could have like some sort of like looting traverse death shadow hollow one something or other i don't know like anything with lingering souls is going to be good with looting and brutality so maybe there's like mardu death shadow is like finally a thing i don't know maybe that sounds that sounds very interesting to me the point is that the doors are open with this card i i think all of these things are worth exploring and i'd also point out that hollow one in modern dodges the best removal spell in the format 
Fatal Push. It also lines up fine against Bolt. If there is a problem that the card has in Modern, it's kind of creature size in general. A 4-4 might not be big enough. Look at it in terms of, you know, Gurmag Angler and Tassigur, Tarmogoyf, Death Shadow. It, it is actually a little small for the format. Yeah, it's it's also kind of awkward that now people are, like, cutting Bolts from their deck because they don't beat Shadow or Gurmag Angler. Yeah. And they're moving more towards, like, Dismember and stuff. So, like, this thing kind of, like, just dies to that same stuff which is kind of unfortunate. Like, I feel like if the format were not in a place where Grixis Death Shadow is dominating and, like, people had their old removal spells, like, this card would also be very good for the same reasons that the, the creatures in Grixis Death Shadow are good. Yep, that makes sense to me. You know how modern moves. Things move very quickly. Oh, yeah. Um, you already see kind of the removal suite changing based on the presence of Grixis Death Shadow, and it's not hard to believe that it'll come full circle again and, and Hollow One will find a place to kind of have its day in the sun. Yeah, I'm, I'm super into this card, man. I, I want to build all, and test all of these decks immediately. I think this is one that's going to make a deep impact in both formats. Yeah, I'm down. I mean, like you said, it, when this card is good, it's it's going to be good because it's broken. And that's exactly like the type of thing that I want to look at doing for a Pro Tour, where it's like, well, maybe this Haunted Dead deck is good. Mm-hmm. And I've been tricked by that card a lot. So I'm kind of skeptical, but... I'm still definitely going to work on these decks. Yeah, it's it's a tricksy card, man, for sure. I, I many, many times was like, well, this just has to be the best deck. You know, you have those openers where you have 12 power worth of guys on turn three, and you're like, why well, haven't I been playing this deck the whole time? And then you have those hands where you just sit there and do nothing and die. Right, or you just, um, like, mulligan twice or whatever. But, yeah, yeah this, that, that card, Hollow One gives those sorts of decks the ability to play kind of like Affinity, which seems pretty sick to me. Agreed. All right. Next card, Big Papa himself, Nicol Bolas God Pharaoh. Four UBR, seven loyalty. Planeswalker, obviously. God, there's a lot of text and it's all really small. Okay, yep. plus two. Target opponent exiles cards from the top of his or her library until he or she exiles a non-land card. Until end of turn, you may cast that card without paying its mana cost. So you get to, like, cascade off their deck. Uh, plus one. Each opponent exiles two cards from his or her hand. Minus four. Nickel Bolas deals seven damage to target opponent or creature and opponent controls. And minus twelve. Exile each non-land permanent your opponent's control. So we were just talking about, like, the format being potentially busted and having, like, these double four fours on like turn two or turn three how do you feel about a seven mana planeswalker i think you just answered you answered your own question there i'm not that into this card uh for a few reasons one the variance inherent in its plus two ability you just don't know what you're going to get i mean playing a card for free is it's it's great don't get me wrong the fact that you get whatever that card is and now your planeswalker is sitting at nine loyalty makes nicole bullis very difficult to deal with but man you need a lot from a seven mana planeswalker you need so so much I'm not yet convinced you're getting it from Nicole Bolas. And also, exactly what deck is this card fitting into? I mean, obviously, we're the first place you go is Grixis Control. Well, that's not a deck right now. Um, so we're starting from scratch. There's a reason that's not a deck right now. The mana is complicated, and I don't think you really get a lot from adding black to the blue-red control deck. You know, maybe this is looking to start on the same baseline as the blue-red control deck and, and just splash a little black for Nicole Bolas. If the format's based around you know, hyper-aggression, even as the format stands now, like, say just this card was in standard right now, not the rest of the set, would you be playing this card? A couple things. I think this card needs a little bit more support, and I also think that this is, like, kind of a green card. Hmm, interesting. Like, like green is the color that's, like, tapping out and, and doing, like, planeswalkery things for the most part, right? Yeah. And the blue control decks are kind of just, like, draw-go, like, only spend mana on its opponent's turn and stuff. And, like, a seven-mana sorcery doesn't really seem to fit into those decks. I'm sure Chapin will, you know, probably try and prove me wrong. But, <laughs> yeah, this this just strikes me as a green card, where it's like, you know, you do a little ramping. You have, like, Oath of Nyssa to kind of fix your mana. You have a tune with Aether and Aether Hub. It's like, casting this is not that difficult in Teamer. So, but, like, once you get there, like, do you actually want this card? I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm not convinced that you do as of right now. And just kind of think about the other options that are available to control decks along the same mana requirements. Would you rather do this or pull for four? In most cases, or excuse me, pull for five. In most cases, it's it's pull, I think. I, and, I think so in the blue decks, yes. Yeah, yeah. And again, if you look at it in comparison to Torrential Gear Hulk, again, I think Gear Hulk. Because the blue decks right now are very much, they have to turn the corner quickly. They can't sit there forever. When they do decide to go on offense, that's it. The game needs to end very quickly. And Torrential Gearhulk does a great job of doing that. 
This card, not as much. Like, the 7 out of nowhere is kind of cool. I like that for a deck that's maybe getting some chip damage in other places, but the blue decks are not right now. I like your analysis of this as a green card, and maybe to succeed, that's the way you have to look at it, but it's kind of tough to look past those those three mana symbols in the top right. There, There is Oath of Nyssa, right? We've seen uh, off-color cards be played in decks before. It was Raphael Levy who played Chandra's in his green-white deck, right? Yeah, Tamiya shows up in like the teamer ones. Uh, there was also a black red mid range deck that did pretty well at the Pro Tour. I think he went seven and three, and I think this type of card would fit right in that deck too because it was like Ballista, Kalidas, Dark Dwellers. Yep. I think they're like Glorybringer. This this card just fits right in with like Chandra Glorybringer, right? So like some sort of like big red deck. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that angle. That's not a deck I'm I've seen before. Again, we t- we talked about kind of a, a chip deck. I think of the old Grixis decks uh, going back to, I guess it would be the last standard that were kind of based around Goblin Dark Dwellers and and Kalidus. Those decks did some chip damage. When you're in that style of deck, I could see Nicole Bolas making a home. So Black Red makes a lot of sense to me. Black Red Splash Blue is a much more natural home than a a blue-red control deck splashing black. Right. Uh, There's also things like Corrupted Grafstone that you could use to ramp into this. There are some pretty reasonable cyclers to turn on Grafstone early. Grafstone turns on Unlicensed Disintegration, which adds to the chip damage. So I can kind of see that being a deck. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm certainly more excited about that idea than I was about just this just kind of being a control finisher, which I I think is the natural place to go when you start thinking about this card, right? Yeah, Big splashy I, I, planeswalker, especially a Nicole Bolas. You're like, yeah, this is a, a control finisher for sure. Yeah, I think this is just a mid range card. I'm on board with that assumption, and uh, and under those circumstances, I'll have to give Nicole Bolas another look. I'm I'm intrigued by the idea of the black red deck. We did it. <laughs> That's it. We solved it. Yep. Okay. Uh, next card. A braid. Is that how you pronounce this? I don't know. Uh, one R instant. Choose one. And these are both great. Deals three damage to target creature or destroy target artifact. Yeah, both sound great. A hyper flexible card uh, answers a lot of a lot of problems in the format. I'm curious if this reaches back to modern. Obviously, three damage to target creature at two mana is not exactly what you're looking for. But for me. When I build modern sideboards, I have the utmost awareness of flexibility. Like, I, I demand many functions from the cards I put in my sideboard. Because modern's too wide open of a format. You can't play narrow hate. So a card like this, which can get uses against, you know, creature decks, things like, uh, we'll say, Counter's Company. It's not great there, but at least you see where you're able to get more flexibility. And you still have this card against Affinity if you need it to kill a cranial plating, right? Right. I don't know if it reaches that far back. Maybe the power level's a little bit too low. But certainly this will be a, a standard sideboard card that sees wide play. I don't know, man. People play Rakdos Charm. I don't, I don't agree with it, but... I feel like this card will show up. I, I played it when Splinter Twin was in the format. I liked it when Splinter Twin was around, but I, I haven't since that point. Yeah, other, other than that, I, I feel like this is a pretty good card for standard. Like, it competes with Harness Lightning, Oath of Chandra, Magma Spray. Like, there are a lot of good options already, but the fact yeah. that it's just a removal spell that also kills Heart of Kyrian is great. I am a little worried that... There are a lot of spells that are pretty good at, like, dealing three damage. Mm. Uh, so four toughness things will start showing up, be doing pretty well. Maybe Hollow One, maybe Thought Not Seer, stuff like that. Well, fortunately, this uh, takes care of Hollow One as well, so it doesn't oh, have a yeah, problem. Oh, yeah, I, I guess it actually doesn't matter, but... Yeah, and I think there's there's some other artifacts in this set as well that uh, merit some attention. Maybe the format shifts in a more artifact-heavy direction. As it stands, you know, against Mardu, this card isn't great. It's only hitting really hard of Kirin on the plus side, I would say. You really don't want to hit a Scrap Heap Scrounger. I guess in post-board games where they have things like Boat or, you know, maybe even Fleet Rail Cruiser, this gets a lot better. But but in game ones, there's not a ton of great targets for it. No, it's just hard of Kirin is hard to kill. And this is a card that does it while also just being a perfectly serviceable card. So Yeah, but you get Harness Lightning, right? Like a similarly costed card efficiently deals with hard of Kirin's in most instances. And, and kind of has more upside, right? It's tough, though. I don't know. It's just like you need, you need like the hub or the attune. They could yeah. have motorist to pump it. It's, it's so tough. Like this is actually just a clean answer. That's true. I, I find it difficult to believe that you would ever play this over Harness Lightning if you have any other energy thing going on. Yeah, the format would have to look very different, I think, for that to be the case. Even, even if you don't have much other energy going on i still think just the harness lightning you know the cumulative effect of playing multiple harness lightnings and eventually maybe sniping out that big creature probably still makes that card worth it but obviously you know the format could shift in different ways where artifacts become you know if god pharaoh's gift becomes the key card of the format then this card (laughs) will see main deck play right it's probably why god pharaoh's gift can't become the key card in the format but anyway we could get to that later 
Yeah, might be good for a week. We'll see. Uh, next card, Supreme Will. To you, instant. Choose one. Counter target spell unless its controller pays three. And look at the top four cards of your library. Put one of them in your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. So it's basically Mana Leak or Impulse for three mana. Yeah, I, w- I want you to go first on this one. I'm curious what you think. And I don't, I don't want to taint your opinion, but with my, uh, my input. I have never lived in a world where control decks had access to things like Supreme Will and Sensor at the same time. It just seems like very, very good for those decks and pretty powerful. Uh, I don't know if you necessarily want to jam four of these because at some point this card is going to go dead and you need actual hard counter spells to draw into at some point, which is kind of why the blue-red deck is so good right now. Is it like you can play... 12 hard counters and they're all reasonable uh, so i'm not sure how many copies this of this card you could actually play but also the fact that you have like negate and essence scatter just means that you still have access to a lot of hard counter spells even if you don't play four disallows but i don't know i do think this card is very strong so I'm, I'm a little lower on this card than you are not to say i think it's unplayable but i am not as excited about it i think it's, it's kind of two mediocre cards stapled together and so it's, it's worth has to come from its flexibility. And granted, again, it's exactly the card you want flexibility on. The big mana leak is going to be completely fine in the early game. And in the late game, you instead are finding your Torrential Gear Hulk. So there's certainly a lot of upside there. I, I guess your take was, was, was more spot on than a lot of other takes I've heard. People have been very excited about this card. And I think it's going to be difficult to have four copies of this card in your deck. Uh, your hand will get very choked. You'll have very awkward draws. You, you need to be able to interact on turn two. Certainly, you know, you have sensor for that. But I, I, I just don't want to load my deck with four copies of this card. I don't think that's what control needs to look like. Especially when you consider a, a lot of times the card you're looking for in the late game is a hard counter. So if you're giving up hard counter slots to play a card like this, you're going to have problems kind of establishing yourself in the late game. But as a one or two of, I can certainly appreciate the flexibility of this card. And, you know, you mentioned Sensor. It's cool, man. The I think the Blue Mages are playing a very cerebral game right now, right? You have a lot of yeah. options, a lot of choices to make. And that's kind of what Blue has always been about. And I think it lost that identity a little bit for a period of time. And it's nice to see design pushing back in that direction again. So one of the places where I think that this card will actually be good and be a four of is something like Blue-White Flash. Just like if you have Sensor and Supreme Will, like those decks aren't necessarily interested in playing a super long game or... Yeah necessarily having access to a hard counter spell right so just having the flexibility of like oh you know i could i could counter their five mana card or if i'm light on threats or something i can actually just cycle this away and look for something better i could get on board with that what do you think about this card in the combo context something like new perspectives you know which is a deck that neither of us is very high on but you know what i'm saying a card that basically functions as finding your key combo piece and also being a counter spell in a pinch yeah, I can see that too. It kind of plays the same way as Flash. Yeah, they're, they're again, I think, a potential four of. But it's just a value card. I, I would I would not jam four into my blue-red deck. Yeah, it is It is pretty sweet though. Even as like this in the sideboard of like team or energy instead of like negate or something, mm. right? Like I could see that happening. There are some games where like you don't actually have a tireless tracker going. You don't have like all the velocity you need. Maybe you start drawing like the weirdo sideboard cards like these. Your hand just like gets clogged with negates or whatever and you want to cycle one away to like actually hit a land drop or something. Like it seems like this could be a potentially better sideboard card than that. I could see that. You know, this card is also, if this sees wide play, again, another strike against the Cole Bolas. You know, when they have a seven-drop Planeswalker in their deck, keeping this card live throughout the entire game, it, it just never becomes bad. Yeah. Um, another strike against that card in my eyes. Yeah, I mean, Torrential Gearhole kind of does the same thing, too. Sure. All right. Next, Hour of Revelation. Three dub-dub-dub sorcery. Hour of Revelation costs three less to cast. If there are ten or more non-land permanents on the battlefield, destroy all non-land permanents. I'm into this one, man. This this one's exciting. I mean, this this card has already existed before and has yeah. pedigree. Like, it won a Pro Tour. It's effectively planar cleansing, right? Yep. If somehow you're, you and your opponent have a million things in play, it's even cheaper. I highly doubt that will come up very often. It's just... Planar cleansing is good enough. Yeah, the, the only spot when I was thinking of where this comes up is against things like the white-black tokens deck that exists right now, the Anointed Procession deck. Like, this card wrecks that deck completely. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, this card is Sam Black's Nightmare. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, uh, good luck with those hidden stockpiles when they just get to wipe everything you've done for the entire game for three mana. One of the biggest problems with pure control is that the diversity of permanence has made it very difficult to just be an answer deck. You yep. have to be able to account for planeswalkers, enchantments, artifacts, creatures. It... it you're getting threatened from every possible direction. Well, now here's your answer. And I kind of didn't realize how much 
I missed this effect until it was gone. You know, as soon as we lost Planner Cleansing, I was like, oh, it's very difficult to play Control now because you just don't have a clean answer. Well, now we do. And I think this may be the end of Blue-Red Control. It's hard for me to believe that those decks aren't incentivized to look towards white for this clean answer. I think Just think about the board states you've seen from Mardu where they have like a Gideon, a Heart of Curid, a few tokens in play. Like, if rats are completely meaningless unless you're able to scoop up all these offshoot permanents, that's what you're being threatened by. So yeah, we have an answer now. Things have changed for control decks, I think. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too, is just Mardu. Exactly Mardu. Like, this card is insane against them and kind of like plugs the holes that mid-range or control had with trying to beat Heart of Kirin and Gideon and normal creatures. This card is certainly going to see play at some point. I don't think it necessarily invalidates blue-red control because blue-red control is is kind of like a Delver deck to me. It just seems like Torrential Gearhulk is a big fat Delver. Hour of Revelation, like there are tools for blue-white like pure control to exist where you just like grind people out and like gain life and stuff. Uh, so I do think that that's going to happen, but... I don't know. Blue-red control just seems like a different deck to me. Okay, that's fair. I, I, you know, I think one of the one of the cards that I kind of missed on from the last set was three mana Gideon. I really saw that card making an impact in kind of white control shells. The thing I underestimated was that white control shells just couldn't exist based on the problems they were facing. Right. Well, now once they can, I think that card may again make some headways into the format. It's kind of like the old icy manipulator problem, right? Where you're forced to extend into the board because you're getting a creature locked down every turn and now it's going to get Wrath away. And you could always, before you Wrath, make a Gideon emblem so your next Gideon kind of protects you a little bit more. I'm super into this card. I want to brew blue-white control decks immediately. It's always been one of my favorite styles to play. And if it's good again in standard, I'm going to be really excited. Yeah, I, I think I would generally look at this as like a sideboard card for the types of decks that I want to play. I'm not super big into like blue-white tap out. It just never happened. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely afraid of this card for most of the decks that I would want to play. Yeah, it's, that's, that's the problem is that like I've been definitely a, a Mardu head over these past few months. And I'm just like, how do I beat this card? Do you have to start playing blue again so you have a clean answer to it? Because it, it's it's so problematic for a deck that doesn't... You know, Mardu is not a clock deck. You're, you're not trying to kill your opponent on turn five. That's not what the game's about. Even though you occasionally do, you feel really lucky when that happens. But uh, yeah, Mardu's about board presence, and this does a lot to just kind of poop on all those efforts to create board presence. Yeah, and then if you're at the point where it's like, oh man, I need to splash counter spells to maybe beat this Wrath of God, then maybe you're just better off trying to play a different deck. Correct. I agree with you. Or trying to find more scrap heap scrounger type things. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Or, or I mean, I guess in that point, you just look towards zombies, right? Which has a ton of those effects. So next card, Champion of Wits. I think this is a card that not a lot of people are excited about, but I have some serious issues. So uh, this is 2U for a 2-1, Naga Wizard. When this enters the battlefield, you may draw cards equal to its power. If you do, discard two cards, and it has externalized for 5UU, which is uh, basically Embalm, except it becomes a 4-4. I guess I share your issues. I, I think this is an exciting card. I don't know, man. I just want to, like, careful study, like, discard some prized amalgams. I'm with you. I, I, dude, I love working in the graveyard. I, I love having access to more resources. Um, Champion of Wits plays in with all of those ideas. You know, it, it goes back to our our first card we, we were talking about, the, uh, the hollow one. You know, it makes your hollow ones nice and cheap. And in the late game, draw four, discard two for seven. That's fine. I'm fine with that rate. There, I have no objection to it. And it's also uncounterable, which is, you know, a nice little bonus. Uh, and then you start thinking about all the kind of goofy ways to get extra value out of this guy. Yeah. How do you, how do you pump its power on the front end? You know, like what sort of anthems are there or whatever? Uh, there's stuff like you could always have a Gideon emblem, uh, you know, blue, white flash. Would, that's a, a plausible situation. Always watching. I don't, I don't think these two cards end up in the same type of deck. That's a little weird, but it's, it's yeah. possible. I don't know. I, th- I think you are just happy with the careful study. If it comes down to you externalizing this, then cool. But yeah, I mostly want to use this with Hollow One and Prized Amalgam and all that nonsense. Yeah, and we mentioned, again, God Pharaoh's Gift. This coming into play as a 4-4 for free on the turn you play that card. I mean, I mean, it's kind of like you already got the eternalized cost, right? So it, you didn't really give up anything by playing the, the God Pharaoh's Gift. So yeah, I, I'm into this card. It's, it's exciting. I, I'm a little bit more excited about the inverse of this card though do you want to read that card the inverse the uh the dream stealer yeah that's my guy right there okay i'm, I'm so, into him 2b human wizard one two menace when dream steal dream stealer deals combat damage to a player that player discards that many cards and it has externalized for four bb dude this guy's cool like I, I i like this guy i think it's like it feels a little cheesy and a little little kiddish 
to want to make this guy, you know, a 5'2", or excuse me, a 5'6", with larger than life. But is that good enough? A, a turn four mind twist? And you can back it up with blossoming defense. The first home I came up with for, for this kind of combo was just black green energy. You still play electrostatic pummeler, so you have kind of that out of nowhere kill. Um, but you also have a secondary plan of just mind twisting them on turn four. This guy's okay for just value, like just just plinking a card out of their hand. He, you know, he's got built-in invasion with Menace. Am I crazy for thinking this card could see constructed play? It could. I think it's a stretch because, I don't know, Just the, the decks are so good now. Before, you used to be able to side in, like, a Spectre or something and just, like, go to town working your mid-range opponent. But, I don't know, I feel like you play this, they play, like, a Gideon or a Chandra or something. You're just like, God damn it, what am I even doing yeah, with my life? He doesn't look good against <laughs> against something like a Gideon. I mean, I, I guess if, you were, if they tap out for a Gideon, and you just larger than life attack? Are you okay? You're probably not okay, right? You're probably still losing that game. Is that yeah, possible? I don't know. They they have a Gideon and a token. Yeah. You have this dude. You mind twisted them, and you just spent like half your turn and half a card turn. to to get all their cards. I don't know. Like you still have to beat the Gideon at some point, and whatever else they have. So. I, I'm willing to admit I could be stretching here. Just something about that combo, though, excites me. I don't know why. It's probably the fact that I've been playing since 1994 and remember the joys of Hypnotic Spectre and my opponents to death. Um, and I, I'm just yearning for those old days in an even more high-powered fashion. I, I'm willing to be wrong here, but I still will be putting together uh, some kind of black-green Dream Stealer deck for sure. Yeah, I don't know. This just strikes me as like a sideboard card. Like Maybe it would be good if you, if there was a turn one mana accelerant and you could actually play this on turn two or something but turn three just seems so slow and it doesn't seem like this is going to be good enough against the majority of decks but like what what context would you want to sideboard it in i don't know like you're playing against mid-range or new perspectives or something yeah it's real good against new perspectives right Eh, in theory it's probably it probably just ends up being pretty bad probably (laughs) it probably is just bad everywhere and i'm i'm needlessly excited about it but you know we have to get excited about some cards like this you have your your blue version of this that you're excited about which probably won't turn out to do much of anything and i'm going to be excited about the black version and uh we can we can both miss the boat on these two one of the things that i tried to look for with the last set and there were a couple good ones there's like glory bound initiate and gust walker is just like what humans are there because Thalia's Lieutenant is still a thing, and like most yeah. of that deck, deck is intact. Speaking of Thalia's Lieutenant, what do you think about... I know this is a little bit off-topic, but this deck has really intrigued me. The mono-white deck that's kind of popping up on Moto right now. Oh, I haven't been looking. You haven't seen it? No. It's it's based around the White Monument. Oh, uh, okay. Um, and yeah, they I play... think Ross did a video on that today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He put something up on Star City. Yeah, and they play things like... Uh, I, I can't remember the name of the card because it's complete limited fodder. The one white, one colorless guy where you can return a permanent to your hand. Aviary um, mechanic. Yeah, I'm looking yep. at this thing now. And then it's got Bygone Bishop, so every one of these guys puts a clue into play. I've played it against it a little bit in the queues. It's much more powerful than it appears to be on its face. I'm not saying it's a tier one deck or anything, but it's one of the breakouts of this new format, uh, a deck that could have never existed before under any circumstances while Marvel was around, kind of like the Black-White Tokens deck. You know, this is doing some very similar things, but it's, it's got a really powerful late game uh, and some really explosive turns. I thought it was cool. Yeah, it doesn't seem bad. Uh, four Westvale Abbey strikes me as a lot, but I guess with Monument, it's probably great. Yeah, I've certainly had my opponent. This has happened on two occasions now with Monument being legendary, where my opponent is about to lose the game and he shows me a hand of like three Monuments in hand. Uh, yeah, for cool. a mono white deck, that's that's a little sticky to play. be playing four of a legendary permanent. Yeah, so look out for humans. They're coming. Next card is Claim to Fame, which I think is... Just a nice little mention for Modern. It is uh, one of the Aftermath cards. The front side is B, Sorcery, return target card with converted mana, or target creature card with converted mana cost two or less from your graveyard to the battlefield, which is good. It's unearthed. It does hit Snapcaster Mage. And the Aftermath card, Fame, is 1R Sorcery. Target creature gets plus two, plus zero, and haste until end of turn. So really looks good with Snapcaster Mage and Death Shadow, as if that deck needed help. Yeah, I think this is a, a pretty clear slot into the, the Grixis Death Shadow deck. I'm not going crazy. I don't think it's a four of or anything, but it's just kind of a, a nice little wrinkle to have a copy of in your deck. Does it do anything new strategically? I guess facing a Death Shadow with haste is kind of a new angle for the deck to be able to present, right? That's kind of neat. Yeah, I was already looking at potentially playing Postmortem Lunge. Yeah, I've, I've actually seen some decks play a copy or two of Postmortem Lunge for sure. Uh, that's been around Moto Results a little bit. This is probably way more exciting than Postmortem Lunge. Yeah, definite, definite inclusion. I, I don't think it really fundamentally changes the archetype or anything. It probably doesn't make the deck any better or worse, but you still want to play it. Does that make sense? Like, that's that's a very weird thing to say. I don't feel like you're really adding much, but 
there are going to be games where you draw this and it like doesn't interact with how the game is going and you're just like, why is this in my deck? And then there are going to be games where like nothing else could win you the game except for this card. So I think it is just one copy, like maybe it's in the sideboard or maybe you have one mate in one board or something. Yeah, I, I do think this just adds like a small angle at the cost of... Uh, potentially not being a very good card in, like, the early stages of the game. But, like, it gives you an extra grindy angle. It gives you an extra angle to, like, give your deck a little bit of reach against, like, other combo decks. Like, maybe you thought scour away a Death Shadow or something, and you just get to kill them on turn four. Yeah, I, I love me some grinding with Snapcaster Mages. Anytime I can reanimate Snapcaster Mages, I get pretty excited. So there'll definitely be a copy or two of this going into my Grixis Death Shadow list for sure. Hell yeah. All right, I think one of the last parts, they have all these deserts and all these desert cards... And I don't know, I kind of like them. Yeah, you're, you're going to have to... We talked a little bit about this pre-show, and I had honestly dismissed the deserts as limited fodder. I didn't see them making their way into Constructed, but you seem to be pretty into them, so I, I definitely want to hear why. The the main reason is Hostile Desert, which is the creature land. Tabs for colorless, and you can pay to exile a land card from your graveyard to make this thing a 3-4 elemental until end of turn. Like, we have creature lands right now, and they're okay, but like this thing just seems awesome. It is so large, and yeah, maybe you have to work to get a land in your graveyard, you know, but like, there's some self-mill stuff for Delirium, uh, there's, if you go hard on the desert stuff, like a bunch of these lands cycle or sack deserts or whatever, uh, if you play Eldrazi, then the the creature land fits right in with that, uh, some of the deserts are, are basically like one color pain lands, so those work well with Eldrazi too, and there are some like pretty good desert payoff stuff, there's like a... 3R, 3-3 that ETB deals 3 damage. Uh, if you control... 3 damage to a creature if you control a desert or if there's a desert in your, in your graveyard. There's a Hydra that's 3G, 3-3. Vigilance, Trample, Reach. Gets plus 1, plus 1 as long as you control a desert. And plus 1, plus 1 as long as there's a desert in your graveyard. So, like, a 4-mana 5-5 five, five is pretty reasonable and has, like, decent abilities. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I think Eldrazi is kind of, like, the, the big thing for me. Just, like, Eldrazi and the Creature Land. But there's also some reasonable colored payoffs, too. That's interesting. Uh, to me, the desert payoff cards just aren't good enough. There, there's going to have to be something else to really push me in this direction. The closest one I've seen is Hour of Promise. I, th I think that's a really interesting card. Uh, you know, search your library. That's a 1G, 4 color, search your library for up to two land cards. Put them onto the battlefield tapped, then shuffle your library. Then if you control three or more deserts, create two 2-2 two, two black zombie creature tokens. Uh, that's noteworthy for the fact that, number one, it searches up two lands. Uh, number land. two, any lands. Yeah, that's kind of a big deal, right? That's not something you see a lot in modern magic is being able to get whatever land you want. You usually get to search for basics only. So, so for me, that's the most exciting payoff card right now. I don't really know exactly where that slots. You know, we talked about Nicole Bolas as a green card. Is there some kind of like deserty control deck? I, I don't see it right now. You know, my first instinct with deserts was to combine them with Ramunap Excavator. That's the Crucible of Worlds on a guy. I just wanted to cycle lands and put them into play. Like, I'm an old school kind of guy. I realize that's a very basic move to make in, in modern magic, um, but that's where I was excited to go. That's almost certainly not good enough to do in Constructed. What do you think about Excavator generally? Do you think that's a card that's going to see some play? In Standard, I think it's going to be tough because the, the body is not that great, but in Modern, this card seems phenomenal. In what context in Modern would you play Excavator? I like, I, there's, there's probably a lot of of different homes but the main thing is just like you know maybe you have collected company with tireless tracker or knight of the reliquary or ghost quarter or whatever D do you play this thing in hate bears probably it, it's probably real good in green white hate bears that seems to be the best home that i've seen so far i was just trying to think back to like the last time i played a crucible of worlds in modern and it was probably like back when blue white tron was still a thing and we had those for sideboard games uh where we'd get ghost quarters and crucible of worlds our opponents out but it's, it's been a while since i touched a crucible of worlds really in any constructed format but that's but because I, it doesn't do anything on its own this is yeah, at least a body, least a body. It works with collected company like yep it, it has a lot of upside and certainly some downside too i mean like this is not a thing that you can lean on against tron or control decks to like repeatedly ghost quarter them or whatever because yeah. it, it dies a lot easier but no i, I think this card is pretty sweet actually yeah, I like it in the green-white context. I think green-white hate bears, it could certainly see some play. As as far as the desert stuff, I will remain unconvinced for the time being. But I guess having more options to just be able to efficiently cast your Eldrazi is a very good thing. That is kind of a problem uh, in standard, is getting some upside from playing all these colorless lands. I, I think the black one, and the text on the black one is tap to add a colorless, or tap, pay one life, add a black mana, 
or a two colorless, two black, tap, sacrifice the desert, put two minus one, minus one counters on target creature and opponent controls. Activate this ability only anytime you could cast the sorcery. I think that card's pretty good. Um, being able too. to get that kind of value out of your land is, is nice. Yeah, for sure. The green one doesn't strike me as very good. No. Nor, nor does the blue one. No. But the other three, I think, are all pretty reasonable. So, so maybe that's the angle. Maybe it's just kind of getting a little bit of value out of your deserts. And I don't see the deck yet, but it, it's certainly my style of deck if it does come together. I, I love those kind of grindy, you know, land-based interactions, getting value from all facets of your deck. Uh, so we'll have to see where that one goes. Yeah, you got to take over for majors and start building, like, splendid reclamation decks. Uh, I tested that card very heavily before a pro tour, <laughs> and it, it was not good enough. But I am prone to do things like that, so I, maybe I'll I'll slide right into his former spot. All right, I don't know, man. I I do think that Eldrazi is like the big payoff. Eldrazi in the creature land. I think that those cards were good, like very close to being good enough already. And this this actually like you know gives them a reasonable mana base, a reasonable reason to be colorless and. You still get to play colored cards with the pain lands and stuff, so I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, the the Eldrazi are actually uh, currently again another deck that's risen in in new constructed, which I see pop up in leagues every now and then. Is mono red Eldrazi, um, yeah. kind of an aggressive slanting deck, and you could see the the red desert fitting right into that deck. Oh yeah, um, being able to pop two damage out of nowhere and more consistently cast your Eldrazi seems great to me. So so yeah, maybe that that is the way to go. All right, man. Uh, next week, basically same time for people who missed it earlier or forgot to do this. Uh, make sure to go follow Brian on Twitter. I'll probably, you know, try and remember to tag you when I put the episode up on Thursday or so, but I might forget. But at B-R-Y-A-N go yes, sir. on and Twitter. I'm, I'm a social media junkie, man. I, my wife is constantly yelling at me to put my phone away. So I'm happy to chat, <laughs> chat decks, chat the podcast, whatever you want to talk about. Let's wrap, man. I'm there. Word. That's awesome. Okay. Hey, did you ever listen to the podcast? Do I do. You know I, I listen. I, I'm not, I don't listen to podcasts regularly. When I travel, I listen to podcasts. Um, okay. so, so I have listened to a bunch of episodes. I am not going to say I've heard everyone, but I've heard a bunch. Okay. Well, you should, you should close it out for me then. Oh, I don't. I don't know if I know the clothes properly. No, you just gotta say that's game in a weird voice. That's, that's it. it. Yeah, that's game. Good luck.